Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and tonight in our 27th session, I don't know, is there anything you guys want to talk about? I don't really have that many slides, so, you know, we can just have a little freeform Q&A maybe. It's not as though there's anything of substance happening in this week's reading. This week, in all seriousness, The Council of Elrond. I mentioned back when we began The Fellowship of the Ring that there were two chapters which tend to drive people out of The Lord of the Rings. Two chapters against which people tend to bounce when they are reading this book for the first time. The first of those two is The House of Tom Bombadil, just because it is so tonally different, just because it is so goofy compared to the rest of the book. But the second chapter is The Council of Elrond. It is the longest chapter in this entire book. It clocks in at 16 and a half thousand words. The second longest chapter in The Lord of the Rings, by comparison, is the first chapter of The Return of the King, Minas Tirith, which clocks in at 13,000. But more than just long, this chapter is dense. Hey, how do you guys feel about meeting a bushel full of new characters and getting their names, oftentimes more than one name? How do you feel about some hints at the last two, three thousand years of history and some veiled references to the three thousand years of history before that? How do you feel about a quick gloss of the political movements over the course of millennia? How do you feel about a brief history of the ring recounted here for your listening pleasure? It's a lot to get through. I have spent a little time in our last, I don't know, how long have we been, how long have we spent on the Lord of the Rings already? 12 sessions, 14 sessions, something like that. Um, I have spent much of that time kind of looking ahead to the Council of Elrond, talking about some of this background material so that we can be a little forewarned, so that we can be equipped as we move through this chapter. So we have a sense of the Valar and of Valinor. So we have kind of a sense of the Numenorians, though I haven't really talked about them. We've talked a little about the Kingdom of Arnor in the north, and we've kind of gestured toward the Kingdom of Gondor in the south. But even with this additional information, coming into the Council of Elrond with more information than the average reader of The Lord of the Rings has when we get to this chapter, there's still so much to cover, just a ton of stuff. So we're going to do it all together. I want to read to you first, though, from the wonderful Tom Shippey, perhaps the greatest living scholar of J.R.R. Tolkien, who writes in the defense of the Council of Elrond, This is a largely unappreciated tour de force, whose success may be gauged by the fact that few pause to consider its complexity. It breaks, furthermore, most of the rules which have been given to an apprentice writer. For one thing, though it is 15,000 words long underestimating a bit there, Professor Shippy. Uh, for one thing, while it is 15,000 words long, in it nothing actually happens. It consists entirely of people talking. For another, it has an unusual number of speakers present, 12 speakers present. The majority, the majority of them, seven, are unknown to the reader and are appearing for the first time. Just to make things more difficult, the longest speech by Gandalf, which takes up half the total, contains direct quotation from seven more speakers or writers, all of them, apart from Butterbur and Gaffer Gamgee, new to the story, and some of them, Saruman, Denethor, to be extremely important to it later on. Other speakers, like Glowen, give quotations from yet more speakers, Dian and Sauron's messenger. Like so many committee meetings, this chapter could have very easily have disintegrated, lost its way, or become too boring to follow. The fact that it does not is brought about by two things. Tolkien's extremely firm grasp of the history of Middle-earth and his unusual ability to suggest cultural variation by differences 
in mode of speech. Professor Shippey has absolutely hit the nail on the head, I think. For me, the Council of Elrond is, yes, deep, yes, long, yes, complex, yes, occasionally, proper noun word salad, but it is also absolutely engaging. It is also bewitching. This chapter does more to accomplish Tolkien's initial goal, the creating of an aggregate mythology for Britain, and much more specifically England, than pretty much anything outside of the Silmarillion. This is perhaps not as epic as the Lord of the Rings will get, perhaps not as operatic as the Lord of the Rings will get, but certainly as deep as the Lord of the Rings will get. This is the real stuff, you guys. This is the, the super caffeinated coffee. This is the stuff that will keep you up late at night. And we are going to talk about it over the course of the next couple of hours, all of which is to say that I have 27 slides. No, really, I have 27 slides, which is pretty much double the normal amount. So I'm going to say right up front, I'm going to do my level best to clear the Council of Elrond in the next two hours. That may not happen. If it doesn't, then we'll just postpone and we'll pick up where we were next week. And if necessary, we'll pad next week with a little Q&A. God knows there's enough to talk about in this chapter. But I don't want to go too quickly through it. I don't want to move through this chapter uh, choosing haste over, over clarity. It is important now that we understand what is happening, not just the movement of the initial plot, but all of the historical and, and cultural pressures that have brought us to this point. This is the end of the Third Age. We're so deep in the history of Tolkien's Middle-earth at this point that a superficial read, a gloss, can leave you with some somewhat misaligned and somewhat superficial interpretations of Tolkien's complete legendarium. I have seen, again, this week, the criticism, the oft-repeated and completely baseless accusation that Tolkien's work is populated by characters who are gooder than good or badder than bad and nowhere in between. And I think that a careful reading of this chapter alone reveals that that just isn't true. Everyone here is complex. Everyone here is is given to frailty and, and suspicion and doubt. This is, as Professor Shippey says, a tour de force. This is a beautiful piece of character work, and I can think of no other fantasy writer, no other writer of English, who has managed a scene of this complexity with this light a touch. And all the way at the end, all the way at the very end of the Council of Elrond, 16 and a half thousand words from now, we're going to bring the tone back. We're going to reclaim it for this story of hobbits and hobbitry. We'll be paying close attention to that transition when we get to it. It is great to have everyone here. Let me look at the uh, at the YouTube chat here. We've got Glorfin David and Nikki and Axis and Jeff and Jackie Boatman is here and Ian is here. Ian, this is your first live broadcast. This is fantastic. I'm so glad to have you here. Yes, and 27. Okay, so we've already got a pool going. Jeff says I'm going to get through 13 of my 27 slides, which honestly, any other week would be ambitious. But this week, we're going to get it done, and we are going to start right now. We're going to begin with Frodo beginning his day right here at the beginning of the chapter. Next day, Frodo woke early, feeling refreshed and well. He walked along the terraces above the loud-flowing Bruinen and watched the pale, cool sun rise above the far mountains and shine down, slanting through the thin silver mist. The dew upon the yellow leaves was glimmering, and the woven nets of gossamer twinkled on every bush. Sam walked beside him, saying nothing but sniffing the air and looking every now and again with wonder in his eyes at the great heights in the east. The snow was white upon their peaks. On a seat cut in the stone beside a turn in the path, they came upon Gandalf and Bilbo deep in talk. 
Hello, good morning, said Bilbo. Feel ready for the great council. I feel ready for anything, answered Frodo. But most of all, I should like to go walking today and explore the valley. I should like to get up into those pine woods there. He pointed away far up the side of Rivendell to the north. You may have a chance later, said Gandalf, but we cannot make any plans yet. There is much to hear and decide today. Suddenly, as they were talking, a clear bell rang out. That is, the, that is the warning bell of the Council of Elrond, cried Gandalf. Come along now, both of you, both you and Bilbo are wanted. Frodo and Bilbo followed the wizard quickly on the winding path back to the house. Behind them, uninvited and for the moment forgotten, trotted Sam. Gandalf led them to the porch where Frodo had found his friends the evening before. The light of the clear autumn morning was now glowing in the valley. The noise of bubbling waters came up from the foaming riverbed. Birds were singing and a wholesome peace lay on the land. To Frodo, his dangerous flight and the rumors of the darkness growing in the world outside already seemed only the memories of a troubled dream, but the faces that were turned to meet them as they entered were grave. So, this is our introduction. We're absolutely anchored in Frodo's experience, and that's pretty much it for Frodo. We're not going to be paying a great deal of attention to Frodo. Bilbo is going to get more screen time in the course of this chapter than Frodo does. Frodo gets one line after the council begins, but it is worth waiting for. We may even get to that at the end of tonight's session. But there are a couple of things here that I wanted to call out. Firstly, we should observe that all important things happen on the porch. This is true in Rivendell as it is true in life. But the porch itself is important because it is a contained space. That is to say that it is, this is a secret council. There is a certain amount of security here. Merry and Pippin are not welcome in the Council of Elrond. We are somewhat sequestered, somewhat protected. It may be that there are spies of the enemy even here even in Rivendell itself. But crucially, the porch is still open to the world. We're not tucked away in some hidden secret hole, some subterranean, you know, cave where we can we can hide away in absolute secrecy. We're still open to the world. And throughout all that we're about to discuss, we must remember the sounds of the river and the sounds of the birds and the sounds of the wind and the light, the light in Rivendell, the light that we pay so much attention to there in that first paragraph. He watched the pale, cool sun rise above the far mountains and shine down, slanting through the thin, silver mist. The dew upon the yellow leaves was glimmering, and the woven nets of gossamer twinkled on every bush. And then, interestingly, Sam walked beside him, saying nothing but sniffing the air. And I like to think that at this moment, Sam is echoing a distant Bilbo and thinking, hmm, smells like elves. I still don't know what the smell of Rivendell is, what the smell of elves is, but I like to think that Sam now knows that smell too, that scent too. Feel ready for the Great Council? Bilbo asks Frodo, and Frodo replies, I feel ready for anything. Frodo has been refreshed. He has been restored. He has just been in bed recovering from the, the mortal wound that he took from the Witch King of Angmar on the, 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 the top of Weathertop. But a little rest in Rivendell is all that you need. The magic of this place has already seeped into him, has, has restored him, has rejuvenated him. And now he's ready for the quest ahead, certainly. For serious talk and serious business, absolutely. But also, hey, I kind of just want to take a walk in those pine forests. But okay, let's do the important thing first. So everyone is marshaled. Everyone is brought. Sam, of course, excluded because... Uh, well, who would think to include Sam? 
Sam often gets overlooked, and that may be his primary power. Elizabeth says in the YouTube chat, smell of elves is probably like the guardian of the forest bath bomb at Lush, right? I kind of want them just to do that, uh, just to do scent of elves. Can we just do a whole token, uh, token line of bath bombs at Lush? scent of elves uh the prancing pony you know we could just have like the scent of the common room of the prancing pony we could have second breakfast we could definitely have pipeweed that would work rather beautifully yeah <laughs> narnia says that makes me think of a little lemba spread going a long way yes very good <laughs> so from there let's move into the actual beginning of our story oh we should say we should note before we move on just for those of you keeping track of the dates, because the dates are going to be significant as we move through, Frodo begins this day right at the beginning of the chapter, as he so often does. This is October the 25th in the year 1418 by Shire Reckoning in the year 3018 of the Third Age. So this is 3018. That is the year that we are in, because we're going to throw around some dates later, and it's kind of important to have that, uh, kind of have that embedded in our consciousness as we're moving forward. So from here, let's move on and meet the members of the council. Elrond was there, and several others were seated in silence about him. Frodo saw Glorfindel and Glowin, and in a corner alone Strider was sitting, clad in his old travel-worn clothes again. Elrond saw Frodo to a seat by his side and presented him to the company, saying, Here, my friends, is the hobbit, Frodo, son of Drogo. Few have ever come hither through greater peril and on an errand more urgent. He then pointed out and named those whom Frodo had not met before. There was a younger dwarf at Glowin's side his son, Gimli. Beside Glorfindel, there were several other councillors of Elrond's household, of whom Aristor was the chief, and with him was Galdor, an elf from the Grey Havens, who had come on an errand from Círdan the shipwright. There was also a strange elf clad in green and brown, Legolas, a messenger from his father, Thranduil, king of the elves of northern Mirkwood, and seated a little apart was a tall man with a fair and noble face, dark-haired and grey-eyed, proud and stern of glance." He was cloaked and booted as if in a journey on horseback, and indeed, though his garments were rich and his cloak was lined with fur, they were stained with long travel. He had a collar of silver in which a single white stone was set. His locks were shorn about his shoulders. On a baldric he wore a great horn tipped with silver that was now laid upon his knees. He gazed at Frodo and Bilbo with sudden wonder. Here, said Auron, turning to Gandalf, is Boromir, a man from the south. He arrived in the grey morning and seeks for counsel. I have bidden him to be present, for here his questions will be answered. We're going to pay close attention to what it is that led to this council, why each of these people is here. We'll move through their stories. We're going to begin with Glowen and the story of Moria and some accounting of Dian and the messenger of Sauron out at the Lonely Mountain, but pay close attention to Boromir because we'll come back around to him. What is a baldric, asks Lynn. It is a... Uh, a little uh, hoop on a belt where where a uh, where a, a horn or other implement can be worn. It is like a like a small tool belt harness kind of thing. So that's that's what it is. But now he has this the great horn of Boromir, which will be so significant later in the story, laid across his knees. This is an absolutely uh, vital part of his characterization, even this early. Here, my friends, is the Hobbit Frodo, son of Drogo. Not Frodo Baggins, certainly not Mr. Underhill, Frodo, son of Drogo. We are already elevating Frodo's name into a different register, and we are going to do this 
Wow, just all the way through this chapter. Names are always crucial in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, but perhaps never more important than they are right here in the Council of Elrond. We're going to, this session, in fact, is named Isildur's Bane, because we are going to talk about Isildur's Bane all the way through this chapter, despite the fact that that particular artifact already has another shorter name. It's the ring. It's the one ring. But we're going to call it Isildur's Bane, not just because these are, generally speaking, northerners, not just because that is a name full of mythic significance, but because in this context, we must remember what the ring is. These, these connotations that we, we each subconsciously bring to these names, and which are oftentimes intended by these names, are vital. Tolkien is giving us the complete picture of the thing. This is not just the ring of power that Bilbo found under the Misty Mountains. This is not just the ring of power that Frodo has carried in the, against the teeth of the Nazgul all the way to Rivendell. This is the ring that led to the fall of Isildur back at the beginning of the Third Age. We're already anchoring ourselves in ancient, ancient history. We also get our introduction to these characters. Glowin, of course, we met at the party the, the previous night, and his son Gimli. He will be a little significant later. We note that uh, Aragorn is once again wearing his travel-worn clothes. He is no longer clad in elven mail, as he was again the night before. He is now Strider. He is Aragorn the Ranger, not yet the returning king. That can wait. All of that can wait. We get the strange elf clad in green and brown, Legolas, a message from his uh, a messenger from his father, Thranduil, the king of the elves of northern Mirkwood. Of course, I've been referring to Thranduil throughout this entire series, but hey, he just got a name, you guys. He was the elven king, if you remember, all the way through The Hobbit, but now he has a name. This is a perfect example of Tolkien drawing in elements of The Hobbit and, and using them, putting them to functional use here in the frame of The Lord of the Rings. Nothing is thrown away. Everything is expanded. It's, oh, it's powerful stuff. It really is. Then we get our introduction to Boromir. Boromir gazes at Frodo and Bilbo with sudden wonder. Why does he feel sudden wonder? Well, let's remember that sudden wonder when we get to our account of, of Boromir's dream. But here, said Elrond, turning to Gandalf, as Boromir, a man from the south, he arrived in the grey morning and seeks for counsel. I have bidden him to be present, for here his questions will be answered. He arrived in the grey morning? Boromir has only been here for a couple of hours. He doesn't know what is going on. He showed up at Rivendell, he showed up at Imladris, and is suddenly dragged into the most important council of the Third Age? I mean, maybe the, the meeting of the White Council prior to the assault on Dol Guldur during the events of The Hobbit, maybe that was almost as important, but this is pretty important, and Boromir is here by chance, if chance you call it. Let's move in then to, uh, to Glowin's account of what is going on with the dwarves. You guys aren't going to see much of my face tonight, are you? I'm not going to be able to take long breaks between slides. You're just going to have to deal with the, uh, the artwork that I've put together here. <laughs> it is now many years ago, said Glowen, that the shadow of disquiet fell upon our people. Whence it came, we did not at first perceive. Words began to be whispered in secret. It was said that we were hemmed in a narrow place and that greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. Some spoke of Moria the mighty works of our fathers that are called in our own tongue, Kazadim, and they declared that now at last we had the power and numbers to return. Glowin sighed. Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. 
Too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. Long have its vast mansions lain empty since the children of Durin fled. But now we spoke of it again with longing and yet with dread, for no dwarf has dared to pass the doors of Khazadum for many lives of kings, save Thror only, and he perished. At last, however, Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go, and though Dian did not give leave willingly, he took with him Ori and Owen and many of our folk, and they went away south. That was nigh on thirty years ago. For a while we had news and it seemed good. Messages reported that Moria had been entered and a great work begun there. Then there was silence, and no word has ever come from Moria since. Then about a year ago, a messenger came to Dian, but not from Moria, from Mordor, a horseman in the night who called Dian to his gate. The Lord Sauron the Great, so he said, wished for our friendship. Rings he would give for it, such as he gave of old. And he asked urgently concerning hobbits of what kind they were and where they dwelt, for Sauron knows, says he, that one of these was known to you on a time. At this we were greatly troubled, and we gave no answer. And then his fell voice was lowered, and he would have sweetened it if he could. As a small token, only of your friendship, Sauron asks us, he said, that you should find this thief, such was his word, and get from him, willing or no, a little ring, the least of rings that once he stole. It is but a trifle that Sauron fancies, and an earnest of your good will. Find it, and three rings that the dwarf sires possessed of old shall be returned to you, and the realm of Moria shall be yours forever." Find only news of the thief, whether he still lives and where, and you shall have a great reward and lasting friendship from the Lord. Refuse, and things will not seem so well. Do you refuse? So, a little brief history here. Moria means black chasm in Sindarin. Khazadum means simply the delving of the dwarves in Dwarvish. Once again, Tolkien using literal names and casting them into imaginary languages, into constructed languages for dramatic narrative effect here. So what has happened? This is our first significant mention of Moria, and we get basically a brief précis of the history, and this is going to be important, so I'm going to spend just a moment on it. First of all, we should talk about the children of Durin and what that actually means. Durin was one of the seven dwarven fathers created by Aule at the beginning of the world. You may remember that story of how Aule, impatient for the children of Iluvatar, creates his own, but he can't breathe life into them. And Iluvatar orders that they be destroyed because Aule has so overstepped his mark, so overstepped his authority. But then in the moment of their destruction, they shrink back from Aule. And this is the proof that Iluvatar has imbued them with souls, with life. And then they are cast away under the earth to wait for the coming of the children of Iluvatar when they too can emerge. Durin's folk lived in Khazadum. That was their home, lived in Moria from the beginning of history, from the beginning of Dwarvish history, and we don't know exactly how long that was, until it fell 1,000 years ago. Then, Thryon I, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Thorin Oakenshield, led the dwarves out of Moria to Erebor, where they founded the kingdom under the mountain. So Moria... Khazadum has been all but abandoned for a thousand years, save for Thror, Thorin's grandfather. In the days after Smaug's attack on Erebor and the loss of his kingdom, Thror ventured into Moria and was lost. Until 30 years ago, 30 years ago, Balin led an expedition to reclaim their ancient dwarven home, and for a moment things looked promising. 
but I guess that two restorations of an ancient kingdom might be too much for one lifetime, and no one has heard from Balin since. So what happened to Moria? Why did Moria fall a thousand years ago? Well, we get this supremely evocative hint. Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world, too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. They dug, they did what dwarves do. They dug, but they dug too deep and they awakened something. And that something emerged and drove them from their home. That is the tragedy of Moria. That is the tragedy of Khazadum and the tragedy of Durin's folk. Most of the dwarves that we've met in the span of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are Durin's folk. We should clarify that. So that's one half of the story. And it's interesting that Glowin leads with that half of the story. Well, we're gathered here to talk about some important serious business, but let me tell you, 30 years ago, Balin had an idea. He was a dwarf with a plan, and he went off to Moria and shrug emoji, I suppose. But also, just, you know, tangentially, now I've told you that story, you should probably know that very recently a messenger from Sauron came to King Dian asking about hobbits. Maybe lead with the more important story. Except, of course, that Glowin is leading with the more important story, because he is of Durin's folk. And if you remember... How longingly the dwarves spoke of Erebor. Moria is Erebor times a thousand. Moria is actually their home. Erebor was the kingdom they created in their exile. But it's only stood for a thousand years. It's only stood for seven dwarven generations. Moria was so much more. So, Sauron does what Sauron does. He sends out emissaries and he says, hey... Let's be friends, you and I. Now, the East has been stabilized. Thanks to the actions of 13 dwarves and one hobbit, the East has been stabilized. And now, Smaug is no longer inhabiting the Lonely Mountain, and you've rebuilt Erebor, and the men have rebuilt Dale, and that's just peachy. So let's be friends, you and me. And all you have to do is tell me about hobbits. I've heard the stories. I know there was a hobbit here not that long ago. So tell me about them, and tell me where they can be found. And, in fact, now that I think of it, it's not terribly important, but the hobbit that was with you stole a trifle, took a, a trinket from me. Definitely get that back, and I will reward you with three of the Dwarven Rings of Power. None of the Dwarven Rings of Power are still out there in the world. The last was taken from Thryan in Dol Guldur, the necromancer, Sauron, took the ring from his hand, and that was the last one. But the rings of dwarven power are huge. The rings of dwarven power formed the great hordes upon which dwarven culture now rests. At the heart of every horde, there was a ring. So this gift is, wow, it's not nothing. And the giving of three rings and the, the reward of Moria itself. You know, we begin with the Moria story to emphasize how important this story is to Gimli. And then we say, well, also uh, to, to, to Glowin, too, I guess I'm jumping ahead to Gimli, how important the story is to Glowin, how important the story is to all of Durin's folk, including King Dian. And then also, well, that was a part of the promised reward. All we had to do was get this trinket of a ring. This must have been tempting. But King Dian refuses. Glowin comes to Elrond to ask for advice. He says, 
the the messenger of Sauron is going to come again. He's going to come for the third and final time. And we just bought time. We just refused him long enough that I could come here and say, hey, hobbits, look out. And also, what is this about a ring? I don't know what this is. But we must understand that as far as the dwarves are concerned, this little trinket is just Bilbo's magic invisibility ring. It is exactly the magic invisibility ring that he told them that he found or was, was given by Gollum deep beneath the earth in the first edition of The Hobbit. So, oh yeah, he had that little, that little gold ring that can make him invisible. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, maybe it was Sauron's, maybe it wasn't Sauron's, but he's offering three rings of dwarven power in return for it. So it must, on some level, at least have been tempting but even understanding that there is no greater stake here, even believing that this is just about a hobbit and a, a trinket of a magic ring, King Dian still refuses and dispatches Glowin and his son to Rivendell, to the elves, for help, for aid, for, for intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, the rings, as, as Trigg points out, were given by Sauron in the first place. Yeah, we'll do a gloss of the history of the rings in, in just a little bit. We must remember that, the, um, that the, uh, the rings of dwarven power were also supposed to corrupt. The seven rings for the dwarves were supposed to create dwarven Nazgul. They were supposed to do exactly what the nine rings that were given to human, to, to the kings of men did. They were supposed to drain these creatures entirely and turn them into willing servants. But dwarves are made of hardier stuff. Not as hardy as hobbits, perhaps, but still pretty damn hardy. So they didn't work. There are no dwarven Nazgul, at least as far as we know. Yeah. Let me see here as I catch up with the YouTube chat. Um, oh, yeah. I just anticipated Gildart's Winter's questions. Nikki, what did the rings do for the dwarves? They were supposed to turn them. They were supposed to empower them and corrupt them in exactly the way that the Nine corrupted the Nazgul, but they didn't work. Instead, they seem to have triggered a kind of avarice, a kind of dragon sickness in the hearts of dwarves and compelled them, but also empowered them to create these vast hordes, these these enormous repositories of, of wealth and magnificence. Yeah. Okay. And as Heroes and Bard says, you know it's serious when the elves and dwarves cooperate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Skipa says, Sauron uses thief, not burglar, which is what the dwarves called Bilbo. Very good point. Yes. Yes. And Kate says, this is very interesting. She's quoting me. They dug. That's what dwarves do, but they dug too deep. And then asks, what does that say about the fundamental nature of dwarves? That's an interesting question, that dwarves are rapacious, that dwarves are perhaps unwise, that dwarves will dig too deep, that dwarves will trek across half the world so that they can go back to their mountain just on the pretense of stealing some treasure, that dwarves will go to war over the Arkenstone, that dwarves are stubborn, that dwarves are are not perhaps sufficiently leavened with caution. Their, their passion and their desire for things of beauty is not quite as wise as we would hope it could be. Stephen Brown says, so I have a theory. Excuse me. The One Ring does not have consciousness, but it just does the most evil and malicious thing it can at the time. Smeagol kills Deagle, Isildur is betrayed, Bilbo turns to evil. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We're going to continue with that. Karen Ruff also says, missed opportunity for short Scottish Nazgul. <laughs> Baggins. Have you heard of Baggins? Yeah, that would have been 
obviously awesome. Obviously just fantastic. Um, okay. So Glowin is here to ask for advice and to warn Bilbo that the enemy is hunting him. That seems awfully coincidental, doesn't it? Once again, he is here on another errand entirely that just happens to bring him here on just the right day. And of course, we should be accustomed to people showing up at Rivendell on just the right day because it happened in The Hobbit too. There is obviously... I'm going to stop beating around the bush here. There is obviously a greater power at work here. We're clearly dealing with some... Whatever force that is, whatever wind of destiny, whatever intrusion of Iluvatar, whatever good fortune, chance if chance you call it, is at work in this world, it is at work today. Because all of these people are here for the Council of Elrond, but they've all shown up perfectly, just at just the right moment. Let's push on and take a look at Elrond's response. And so I have been sent at last by Dian to warn Bilbo he is sought by the enemy, and to learn, if maybe, why he desires this ring, this least of rings. Also we crave the advice of Elrond, for the shadow grows and draws nearer. We discover that messages have come also to King Brand and Dale, and that he is afraid. We fear that he may yield. Already war is gathering on his eastern borders. If we make no answer, the enemy may move men of his rule to, to assail King Brand and Dian also. You have done well to come, said Elrond. You will hear today all that you need in order to understand the purposes of the enemy. There is naught that you can do other than to resist without, with, excuse me, with hope or without it. But you do not stand alone. You will learn that your trouble is but part of the trouble of all the Western world. The ring. What shall we do with the ring, the least of rings, the trifle that Sauron fancies? That is the doom that we must deem. That is the purpose for which you are called hither. Called, I say, though I have not though I have not called you to me, strangers from distant lands, you have come and are here met in this very nick of time by chance as it may seem. Yet it is not so. Believe rather that it is ordered that we who sit here and none others must now find counsel for the peril of the world. Now, therefore, things shall be openly spoken that have been hidden from all but a few until this day. And first, so that all may understand what is the peril, the tale of the ring shall be told from the beginning, even to this present, and I will begin that tale, though others shall end it. I love, I absolutely adore Elrond's sarcasm there. You will learn that your trouble is but part of the trouble of all the Western world, the ring. What shall we do with the ring, the least of rings, the trifle that Sauron fancies? That is the doom that we must deem. Also, that is the doom that we must deem. Doom here meaning, um, meaning fate. That, that is the, that is the, you know, path, the, the, the road forward that we must decide. That is the doom that we must deem is really beautiful. Um, that is the purpose for which you are called hither. Called, I say, though I have not called you to me, strangers from distant lands. You have come and are here met in this very nick of time by chance, as it may seem, yet it is not so. Believe rather that it is ordered that we who sit here and none others must now find counsel for the peril of the world. Ordered here, not meaning commanded, but rather designed. That, that the world has been thus ordered. That we are arrayed such that we have come together. We are not following a commandment. We are not following an injunction. We are simply here. This is how the cards have been dealt. This, you know, so do all who, who live in such times, you know. This is how things have shaken out, and we will take that as a sign that we and we alone will decide what must be done, that everyone who should be here is here. This implausible coincidence that any one of you being here would be surprising. 
on this day of all days, right after Frodo wakes up, you know, this is the first possible day that we could have held the Council of Elrond. And look at you all. Look who's here. Skipa says it is the natural order of things for them to be there. That is also one possible interpretation. Yeah, or, or like one... Um, how can I describe that? One refinement of that interpretation? Yes, that it is natural order, that it isn't an external will per se. This isn't Iluvatar, you know, metaphorically sitting on a cloud and looking down and saying, ah, yes, everyone is here, jolly good, and, you know, having a cup of tea. That is not what we're getting, or at least one possible interpretation is that that's not what we're getting here, but rather it is so woven into the fabric of the natural world. This was a part of the song that was sung at the beginning of time, that everything in the world has conspired to bring these people here at this time. As Jonathan Price says, Bilbo's luck exponentially magnified. It is absolutely, uh, absolutely Bilbo's luck that I have in mind all the way through the Council of Elrond, because as we've said before, Bilbo's luck is not a guarantee. Bilbo's luck is nothing more than an opportunity. Bilbo still has to take action. And Frodo's too. He's inherited the Baggins' luck. An opportunity is presented to him, but he's the one who has to take it. That's, uh, that's something that's in the back of my mind throughout this entire, throughout this entire thing. Yeah, good. Yes, we're, we're getting some, uh, some interest here in, in Stephen's theory. Uh, Galadrabeki says, maybe not quite intrinsic evil, but perhaps flaws that can be manipulated by temptations. That's very good. And Becca Eller says, that makes sense because it brings out the flaws of the wearer. All the rings seem to. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Oh, and Jackie Boatman says, oh, I think it's Iluvatar for sure. Also a possible interpretation, though, of course, if it is the natural world, if it is a product of, of you know, thousands of years of history and, and, and momentum and a million different choices, a million different, you know, butterfly wings all over the world, if it's a combination of all of those things conspiring to this moment, then that's the will of Iluvatar too. The only question, I suppose, in either one of those interpretations is, is Iluvatar present in the world or is this you know, a, a foreordained system. Has he retreated from the world? We're going to talk a little about Iluvatar's direct interventions, though, in just a little bit. Um, let's, uh, yes, good, good. <laughs> let's move on to our next slide here. As Elrond begins the tale of the ring. Then all listened while Elrond in his clear voice spoke of Sauron and the rings of power and their forging in the second age of the world long ago. A part of his tale was known to some there, but the full tale to none, and many eyes were turned to Elrond in fear and wonder as he told of the elven smiths of Eregion and their friendship with Moria, and their eagerness for knowledge by which Sauron ensnared them. For in that time he was not yet evil to behold, and they had received his aid and grew mighty in craft, whereas he learned all their secrets and betrayed them, and forged secretly in the mountain of fire the one ring to be their master." But Celebrimbor was aware of him, and hid the three which he had made, and there was war, and the land was laid waste, and the gate of Moria was shut. Then, through all the years that followed, he traced the ring, but since that history is elsewhere recounted, even as Elrond himself set it down in his books of lore, it is not here recalled, for it is a long tale, full of deeds great and terrible, and briefly though Elrond spoke, the sun rose up in the sky, and the morning was passing ere he ceased. Of Numenor he spoke, its glory and its fall and the return of the kings of men to Middle-earth out of the deeps of the sea, borne upon the wings of storm. Then Elendil the Tall and his mighty sons, Isildur and Anarion, became great lords, and the north realm they made in Arnor, and the south realm in Gondor, above the mouths of the Anduin. But Sauron of Mordor assailed them, and they made the last alliance of elves and men, 
and the hosts of Gilgalad and Elendil were mustered in Arnor. Thereupon Aurond paused a while and sighed. I remember well the splendor of their banners, he said. It recalled to me the glory of the elder days and the hosts of Beleriand. So many great princes and captains were assembled, and yet not so many, not so fair as when Thangordrim was broken, and the elves deemed that evil was ended forever, and it was not so. Nikki says, is it weird for Aaron to talk about his family like this? Um, no. I mean... How else should he talk about his family? This was still thousands of years ago. This was still epic history. I like that he doesn't say, so anyway, then my dad is like, we should probably take care of this. You know, it works pretty well for me. And Elrond has the dignity, which which is uh, pretty great. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, Jackie says the influence of Iluvatar exists in and out of time as we know it, I think, which is kind of... Uh, Yes, kind of an acknowledgement of one of those ideas that we discussed back in The Hobbit, which is that predestination only looks like predestination if you are embedded in linear time. And if Iluvatar is not embedded in linear time, that is, if he exists beyond the, the river of time, beyond the burden of past, present, and future, then there is no such thing as predestination because everything is simply happening now. The choice, the free will choice, and the pattern, the greater design, are happening at the same time. It is... It is interactive even though from us embedded in the passage of years it feels more you know more um more planned than that uh becca eller asks does anybody else want some kind of gps location on where the elven rings are i don't like that they're just gone in the sea the elves rings aren't gone in the sea in fact two of the three elf rings are right here when glowin points out later uh hey how about using the elf rings, though? You kind of imagine Elrond and Gandalf kind of looking at each other, looking at their shoes, looking out of the window, you know, wondering if it's time for tea. Because two of the three are right here. Two of the three rings that Calibrimbor takes from uh, takes from Eregion and hides away and causes the war with Moria after, you know, Sauron has revealed his, uh, his corruption in the forging of the One Ring. Two of those three rings are here. Vilia, the Ring of Air, is owned by Elrond. He is wearing it right now. Now in this scene. Nario, the Ring of Fire, is owned by Gandalf. He is wearing it right now in this scene. And Nenya, the Ring of Water, is owned by the Lady Galadriel, who we will meet in due course. So they are present. They are, they are right nearby. Yeah. Um, good. All right. Yes, exactly. Jackie says that awkward moment when no one wants to say anything about the elven ring. Elven ri rings, you say. Um, who? Well, uh, we we have someone who does piercings here in Rivendell. Is that what you? Yeah, just look at the time. Gotta go. Moon runes to read and all. Yes. Heroes and Bard says, isn't it implied in the Ina Lindale that Iluvatar saw the entire history of Middle Earth before it played out? Yes. The song itself. Is, is almost all of history. It's, it's not quite all of history, but it's almost all of history. And then when the song has kind of done, when it has cycled, that is when Iluvatar creates the world in the image of the song, if you like, in the pattern of the song. Yeah, good. Little, little, uh, little, uh, <laughs> little Silmarillion for you right there, because goodness knows we just don't have enough to talk about. So here, um, Let's gloss Numenor. Actually, we'll gloss Numenor a little later when we get to Boromir, because, uh, in fact, that's pretty much the next slide. Okay, let's gloss Boromir. Uh, let's, let's gloss Numenor right now. Um, 
Numenor. The island king of Numenor was um, created at the beginning of the Second Age. So this is roughly 6,000 years ago, okay? It's created for men to live, for the Numenorians to, to live. They are great and powerful. They are tall. We get here the reference to uh, Elendil the Tall from Elrond on that slide. Elendil the Tall is thought to be like eight feet tall. The men of yore were of great stature and great spirit and great heroism. People back then were just better than the diminished people that we get today. All of this, of course, is part of uh, Tolkien's mythic sense of Golden Age thinking. So the island of Numenor exists in the West. It exists halfway between Middle-earth and the Undying Lands, where mortals cannot go. Mortals cannot go that way. And Numenor is beautiful. It is remarkable. It is a civilization that, that over the course of a thousand years ascends to a, a, a peak basically unmatched in the history of Middle-earth. The Numenorians are great and they are powerful and they travel east to Middle-earth. They cross the great ocean to Middle-earth, but they do not travel west. They are prevented from traveling to Valinor and the Undying Lands. And of course, because they're prevented from traveling to Valinor and the Undying Lands, they're still human beings. Guess what they want to do more than anything else? They want immortality. They want what they see as the gift of the elves. They want to live forever. They do not understand in their hubris, in their arrogance, they do not understand that their mortality is actually their greatest gift, that they, unlike the elves, are not of the world. That is a wondrous thing, should be a wondrous thing, but they are greedy and their civilization is great and life is easy and they want to live forever. And 3,000 years after the founding of Numenor, King Arpharazon launches this mighty unheralded invasion of the Undying Lands. He sets forth with his navy from Numenor, travels west, which he is not supposed to do. The rule is you are not allowed to travel so far west that you are out of sight of Numenor. Like, stay close, you guys. That's the rule. Don't screw around here, because we will just kill you. But no. King Arpharazon launches this mighty invasion of the Undying Lands. He's greedy, he's rapacious, he's jealous of the elves, and of course, crucially, he is influenced by Sauron. Manwe the Vala calls to Iluvatar and says, We need protection. This cannot stand. This, they, they have broken your injunction. You have to take action. So Iluvatar cracks the earth. At this point in Tolkien's mythology, here toward the end of the Second Age, the world is literally flat. So you have the far distant eastern lands, and then you have middle, or I'm progressing from east to west, okay? So the sun rises first over the eastern lands, about which we know practically nothing, but then over the region of Middle Earth that we know, then in the ocean over, uh, over Numenor, and then in the west, the Undying Lands and Valinor, right? but the world is flat, so you just travel west until you hit it. That's great. So Iluvatar cracks the world. He takes Arda and he makes it round. So now if you leave Middle-earth and you travel west, you just come around back east again. You cannot reach the Undying Lands just by sailing west anymore. They are removed from the kind of physical space of Arda. And that's not all that he does. He also sinks Numenor. He sinks the entire island, the entire continent, effectively. He sinks it. The Numenorians are done. In their pride, they have fallen. 
and it's interesting to note, some of you may remember me talking about Professor Tolkien's uh, Atlantis dreams that he had had dreams for his entire life of great waves coming and washing over the land and drowning everyone and sinking the land beneath the sea. He'd had these dreams for all of his life. And he describes the fall of Numenor. He uses the, uh, the Quenyan phrase, the downfallen, which translates as Atalante. So this is the Middle Earth Atlantis myth, effectively. But not all the Numenorians, crucially, die. In nine ships, the companions of Elendil, Elendil the Tall, previously mentioned on the slide in front of you right now, in nine ships, the companions of Elendil sail from Numenor to Middle-earth, where they found the northern kingdom of Arnor and the southern kingdom of Gondor. So Numenorean blood is present in Middle-earth, and these men are still great. Elendil didn't join the attack because he was of even greater stature. So he is saved, and they begin the great bloodlines of the West. But over the years, those bloodlines dwindle. Over the years, they ebb. And we're going to see Boromir talk about, uh, talk about you know, the Numenorean blood in just a moment, actually. Um, before we get, in fact, to Frodo's slide, I think I can, actually, I'm going to need to stop sharing this with you for just a moment. Hey, you guys, how you doing? I'm still sitting here. I'm still, uh, you know, doing the thing. I want to share with you this map. Uh, this is from the LTRproject.com, which I have previously mentioned, which is fantastic. If you want interactive maps of the Lord of the Rings, check these things out. Because we're going to talk a little about uh, geography this time, and I want to do a quick gloss here. So we are here. I don't know if you can see my mouse cursor very clearly, but we are here pretty much in the middle of the map here in Rivendell. We have traveled along the East Road here. We're Bree and Amosol and the Last Bridge and the Trollshaws and the Ford of Bruin, and now we are here in in Rivendell. Here on the eastern side of the map, you can see Erebor, and you can see Dale, and you can see Esgaroth. You can see the Elven King's Halls. This is the, uh, this is the Hall of King Thranduil. This is where Legolas comes from, right here. And uh, further south, we can see Moria, right here in the Misty Mountains. You can also see the Gladden Fields here, where Isildur fell. We're about to uh, get that story in just a moment. You can see Lorien further here to the south. But then if we scroll all the way down, you will see two significant places that we haven't had call to discuss at all already. Rohan, all the way here, you can see, um, this is technically still Eriador on the western side of the mountains, but once you come through the gap of Rohan, you get into Rohan proper, and then south of that, Gondor, the southern kingdom. So Arnor is all the way up north, Gondor is all the way down here, and then of course, Mordor. Also, you can see here, if I can... Hmm, I wonder if I can scroll in, if I can zoom in still further. I guess I can. It's a little ugly, but we can make it work. Here you can see, uh, well, first of all, Dagorlad or the battle plane here. You can see Moranon, the Black Gate here as, as a possible entry point into uh, Mordor. But this is going to be relevant later. We have Minas Tirith here in the west, Minas Morgul here in the east, and between them, the ruined city of Asgiliath. We're going to get that story later, so I want you to have that sense of where we are, right caught between Mordor and Gondor as a whole. This is going to be very, very important later. Okay. That, I think, is going to do it. Uh, Elizabeth says in the YouTube chat, this is my first time actually looking at the map of Middle-earth. Whoa, wow. Well, in that case, let me, uh, let me scroll back up and show you a little more about what we haven't seen yet. I don't have time to do that. I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. But this gives us a better sense of the distance here, right? Because we've got Hobbiton here in the west, all the way through Buckland. We've got the Old Forest and the Barrow Downs and Bree here, the Midgewater Marshes. We came up north through here, down to Weathertop. We kind of wandered around the East Road, the last bridge, as I said, the Fort of Bruin in and all the way to Rivendell. So Frodo has already undertaken a great journey. There was a great journey 
Still, still more journey ahead. No time, says Elizabeth. Yes, I know. We've got we've to keep moving on. So let me cancel that slide there and make sure that I'm caught up here. Yes. Okay. So the next thing that happens is Elrond is remembering. He's remembering the, the great hosts of elves and men at the last alliance. This is going to be the securing of the world against evil. I want to actually, before we move on, just take a look at that last line because it breaks my heart. Thereupon Elrond paused a while and sighed. I remember well the splendor of their banners, he said. It recalled to me the glory of the elder days and the hosts of Beleriand when so many great princes and captains were assembled and yet not so many, nor so fair as when Thangorodrim was broken and the elves deemed that evil was ended forever and it was not so. We might think of the the uh, the breaking of Thangorodrim. This was... Uh, basically the assault on Morgoth in the first age. This was the first major battle against, you know, or the first kind of climactic battle against evil in the frame of Middle-earth. And the elf said, phew, thank goodness that's over. Welp, we defeated evil. What are we going to do now? Disneyland, you say? Okay, let's go to Disneyland. And then, of course, at the end of the second age, we have the Battle of the Last Alliance. Elves and men, shadows of their former selves, come together once more to defeat Sauron. And he is slain. He is driven away. The ring is taken by Isildur. The day is saved. And phew, looks like we vanquished evil once and for all. Awesome. Wait a minute. This is a cycle that has been repeated before. We've done this before. And the incalculable fatigue of someone like Elrond, of someone like all of these elves, most of whom were around for those wars, the incalculable fatigue of this must be all but unbearable. They keep fighting. They keep dying. They see the world become less and less and less, and they see the shadow grow more and more powerful, and they're called upon to fight again. Because what else are you going to do? Frodo, though, is struck by, uh, by Aaron's statement there. You remember, said Frodo, speaking his thought aloud in his astonishment. But I thought, he stammered as Aaron turned toward him, I, th I thought that the fall of Gilgalad was, was a long age ago. So it was indeed, answered Aaron gravely. But my memory reaches back even to the elder days. Eärendil was my sire, who was born in Gondolin before its fall, and my mother was Elwing, daughter of Dior, son of Luthien of Doriath. I have seen three ages in the west of the world, and many defeats, and many fruitless victories. I was the herald of Gilgalad and marched with his host. I was at the Battle of Daggerlad before the Black Gate of Mordor when we had the mastery. For the spear of Gilgalad and the sword of Elendil, Eglos and Narsil, none could withstand." I beheld the last combat on the slopes of Orodruin, where Gilgalad died and Elendil fell and Narsil broke beneath him, but Sauron himself was overthrown and Isildur cut the ring from his hand with the hilt shard of his father's sword and took it for his own. At this the stranger Boromir broke in. So this is what has become of the ring, he cried. If ever such a tale was told in the south, it has long been forgotten. I have heard of the great ring of him that we do not name, but we believe that it had perished from the world and the ruin of his first realm. Isildur took it, and his tidings indeed. We're reminded again that not everyone here knows this story. In fact, as the narrator assures us, and I am always surprised by this because the narrator says no one here knows the full story. And in that he's including Gandalf? Gandalf doesn't know the full story? Really? What parts of this 
is Gandalf learning for the first time? Is it minor stuff or relatively minor stuff like Balin and company returning to Moria? Is it, you know, incidental detail stuff like Faramir's dream, like Boromir's dream? Maybe. There can't be stuff of substance here that Gandalf doesn't know, right? Skipa says, I'm surprised how far Boromir, how far behind Boromir is on this story, but we have to remember that Arnor and Gondor are separate kingdoms. There is no mass media, there is no mass transit, there is no, you know, migration of peoples or of populace, and Gondor has a thing or two to worry about. And also Gondor in its pride, I don't think necessarily looks abroad for stories. He's focused. He knows what is what. But mostly here I'm struck by the antiquity of Elrond and the fatigue of Elrond. I was at the Battle of Daggerland before the Black Gate of Mordor where we had the mastery. He was there. He saw it happen. And now it's all happening again. I beheld the last combat on the slopes of Erodruin, where that's Mount Doom, to gloss that for you, where Gilgalad died and Elendil fell and Narsil broke beneath him. But Sauron himself was overthrown, and Isildur cut the ring from his hand in the hilt, with the hilt shard of his father's sword and took it for his own. Hey, you guys, it's suddenly occurring to me that I'm probably not going to get through 27 slides tonight. Let's see how far we go. Yes. <laughs> Ian Mann. Oh, this is, this is heartbreaking. Ian says, this reminds me of the veteran interviewed after the premiere of Dunkirk. He thought the world was done with war, but he sees it going to hell again. That's, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Link, son of Glowen, says, I'm sure Faramir knew more, more of the story than Boromir. Well, possibly, though Denethor, by Gandalf's account, also doesn't know much of the story, so I'm not, not sure there. Yeah, yeah, good. Though Nicole, in his defense, yes, Boromir is practical. He's concerned with the immediate threat to his people. And he is sent to Elrond because Elrond is a lore master. You know, Elrond knows more than, well, conceivably anyone. Is there Anyone in Middle-earth who is more possessed of lore than Elrond? Well, of particular kinds of lore, perhaps there are, there are individual instances, you know. Treebeard, I'm sure, knows more of the Ents than Elrond does. Tom Bombadil knows more of whatever the hell it is that Tom Bombadil knows about <laughs> than Elrond does. Sauron, presumably, is a, a fair lore master in his own right, but Elrond has the preserve of the elven knowledge. Yes, good. Good. Denethor knows more than he says, though, so he might actually know more than Boromir thinks he does. Possibly. Yes, possibly. Sure. Sure. Okay. Let's... Glorfindel says Glorfind David. Thank you for that. Elrond is just a giant nerd, says Heroes and Bards. And as we know, giant nerds will save the day. Lynette asks, why does Boromir come to, to Rivendell instead of Faramir? Actually, we'll get that when we get to... Uh, we get to... Um, Boromir's dream, which we will get to in just a couple of slides time. So let's move forward here. This is, um, excuse me, this is memory of Gondor here. In the south, the realm of Gondor long endured, and for a while its splendor grew, recalling somewhat of the might of Numenor ere it fell, high towers that people built and strong places, and havens of many ships, and the winged crown of the kings of men was held in awe by folk of many tongues. Their chief city was, Os was Os excuse me, their chief city was Osgiliath, citadel of the stars, through the midst of which the river flowed, and minus Ithil they built Tower of the Rising Moon, eastward upon a shoulder of the Mountains of Shadow, and westward at the feet of the White Mountains, Minas Arnor they made, Tower of the Setting Sun. There in the courts of the king grew a white tree, from the seed of that tree which Isildur brought over the deep waters, and the seed of that tree before came from Erisea, and before that out of the uttermost west in the day before days when the world was young. 
But in the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, the lion of Meneldil, son of Anarion, failed, and the tree withered, and the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser man. Then the watch upon the walls of Mordor slept, and dark things crept back to Gorgoroth. And on a time evil things came forth, and they took Minas Ithil and abode in it, and they made it into a place of dread, and it is called Minas Morgul, Tower of Sorcery. Then Minas Arnor was named anew Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard, and these two cities were ever at war, but Osgiliath, which lay between, was deserted, and in its ruins shadows walked. So it has been for many lives of men, but the lords of Minas Tirith still fight on, defying our enemies, keeping the passage of the river from Argonoth to the sea, and now that part of the tale that I shall tell is drawn to its close, for in the days of Isildur the ruling ring passed out of all knowledge, and the three were released from its dominion. But now in this latter day they are in peril once more, for to our sorrow the one has been found. Others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played small part. So, Gondor, one of the the air kingdoms of Numenor, I suppose, the southern kingdom, as Arnor was the northern kingdom, was was built in memory of Numenor. High towers that people built in strong places and havens of many ships and the winged crown of the kings of man, Numenorians, kings of man, was held in awe by folk of many tongues. Their chief city was Osgiliath, citadel of the stars, through the midst of which the river flowed. This is why Osgiliath is strategically important. It's because it occupied both banks of the river. And the major crossing for the river was right in the middle of the city. This is why it is important. So, on the eastern side, we have Minas Ithil, Tower of the Rising Moon, eastward upon a shoulder of the Mountains of Shadow, and westward, west of the city. And these are called towers, by the way, but it is better to think of them as as citadels themselves, fortified cities, okay? So on the east, we've got uh, the, tower of the, the Tower of the Rising Moon. On the west, we've got the Tower of the Setting Sun. This is beautiful. This is poetic. This is all that Numenor was in its day. But it didn't last. In the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, the Lion of Menildil, son of Anarion, failed, and the tree withered, and the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser men. The bloodline wasn't poor, it wasn't pure. It, it couldn't be pure. So few Numenorians remained that it had to mingle, and in the mingling, men were made lesser. Then the watch upon the walls of Mordor slept, and dark things crept back to Gorgoroth, and on a time evil things came forth, and they took Minas Ethel and abode in it, and they made it a place of dread. It is now called Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery, specifically the Tower of Evil, Bad Sorcery, that's the translation. And we have, we have encountered the word Morgul before, because the Witch King of Angmar wields the Morgul knife. The tower was taken by the Nazgul. The, the Nazgul besieged the tower. That is where they reside now, when they're not, you know, chatting with Farmer Maggot or, uh, or Hamfast Gamgee, yeah. Um, so instead, Minas, Ar Minas Anor is, is now renamed Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard, and between them is the city of Osgiliath, formerly the greatest city on the face of Arda, the, the greatest city known to Middle-earth, but it is now nothing but a ruin. It is literally a battlefield between Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul. And that is in the, sh in the, in the shadow of the, of the mountains of shadow. It is right there. Yeah. Um, let me see here. If I can scroll back through the YouTube chat and see if we can catch out. Uh, these are the two towers. Yes, says Guildarts. I forget. Um, yes, but no. There are 
other towers too. There are other pairs of towers that we might consider in the two towers. The two towers is a somewhat misleading name. Yes. Good. All right. Let's keep moving on. Um, Oh, I should say that Osgiliath, by the way, that we see here fall, Osgiliath falls in the year 2000 of the Third Age. So, you know, basically a thousand years ago, it actually fell one year after dwarven exiles from Moria under King Thryon I founded the kingdom of Erebor. So everything that we were discussing earlier with Glowin, the... the Delving too deep in the emergence of the fear, the emergence of Durin's bane, the flight of Durin's folk from Moria to Erebor, that happened a year before Osgiliath falls. This was a tough time. Let's move on to Boromir, because he has a thing or two to say about a thing or two. He ceased, but at once Boromir stood up tall and proud before them. Give me leave, Master Elrond, said he, first to say more of Gondor, for verily from the land of Gondor I am come, and it will be well for all to know what passes there, for few I deem know of our deeds, and therefore guess little at their peril if we should fail at last. Believe not that in the land of Gondor the blood of Numenor is spent, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten. By our valor the wild folk of the east are still restrained, and the terror of Morgul kept at bay, and thus alone are peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us, bulwark of the west." But if the passages of the river should be won, what then? Yet that hour maybe is not now far away. The nameless enemy has arisen again. Smoke rises once more from Orodorin that we call Mount Doom. The power of the black land grows, and we are hard beset. When the enemy returned, our folk were driven from Athelion, our fair domain east of the river, that we kept a foothold there and strength of arms. But this very year, in the days of June, sudden war came upon us out of Mordor, and we were swept away. We were outnumbered. For Mordor has allied itself with the Easterlings and the cruel Haradrim, but it was not by numbers that we were defeated. A power was there that we have not felt before. Galadra Becky in the YouTube chat gives what is perhaps my favorite piece of understatement ever, quote, Boromir brags a bit. Well, he does. Boromir is evidently arrogant. He interrupts the story of the finding of the ring. Remember, this is the frame. Elrond is saying, I'm going to tell you the whole story of the ring, or I'm going to tell you the parts of the story of the ring that I know. Okay, here it is. It's the entire history of, of Middle-earth right up to the, the, I mean, we're about to get to the Gladden Fields, basically. We're about to get to the, the great betrayal of the ring and it, it, the, the death of Isildur and the passing of the ring into unknown history. Hey, Gandalf, take it. But no, Boromir has a thing or two to say. He just wants to stand up and let you guys know, no, no, no. The blood of Numenor, still pretty good in Gondor, actually, thank you. And by the way, you're welcome. By the way, hiding behind the bulwark of the West, you're welcome. He is arrogant, but that doesn't mean that he's not in part right. I mean, no one here who is wise, Elrond, Gandalf, Aragorn, none of these people is ever for a moment you know, forgetful of the importance of Gondor, for the importance of Minas Tirith. This is actually holding the flood of the minions of Sauron back. They are great men, less great than they were, but still great men doing important and good work. But Boromir just has to remind you. Boromir just has to stamp up and say, hey, just FYI, I want you guys to know how cool we are. 
As Sabrina says, I think it's easy to roll our eyes at Boromir because we understand the ring better by this point, but he also really has no idea what's going on other than his land is right next to Mordor, other than his land is right next to Mordor, and he had a weird prophetic dream. Let's uh, get to his dream. Is there anything else that we need to talk about here? No, we already talked about Numenor. We are good. Look at us making fantastic progress. So we learn here that, um, that actually... Boromir's brother Faramir had a dream, a prophetic dream, that he had it first, and he had it more often. But Boromir had the dream too, and here it is. In that dream, I thought the eastern sky grew dark and there was a growing thunder. But in the west, a pale light lingered, and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying, Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the huffling forth shall stand. Of these words we could understand little, and we spoke to our father, Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor. This only would he say, that Imladris was, the, was of old the name among the elves of a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of loremasters. Therefore my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. Because the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Loath was my father to give me leave, and long have I wandered by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many have heard, but few knew where it, la where it lay. Okay, so a quick check here of this voice of prophecy, we should be perfectly accustomed to the imagery here, to the iconography of this dream. In that dream, I thought the eastern sky grew dark and there was a growing thunder. Influence of the shadow, influence of the enemy, check. But in the west, a pale light lingered, and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying, the west, the light, Valar, the Undying Lands, check. This is all, this is all consistent so far with our understanding of the cosmology, of the, the kind of um, the metaphysical geography of Arda. This all makes a lot of sense. Shadow in the east, got it. Light in the west, got it. This all, this all tracks, Boromir, you're doing great. Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. So we know that he doesn't know where Imladris is or even what Imladris is. He does know about the sword that was broken. That is part of the myth that has been retained in Gondor. Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. Well, okay, lines three and four, pretty clear, pretty transparent. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. This is wisdom of a different order, but still powerful and effective wisdom. That's it right there. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. Well, we can't really parse that, but okay, there will be some signifier, there will be some some object, some artifact during these councils that will indicate that doom is at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Boromir doesn't know about halflings. Boromir doesn't know about Isildur's bane. He didn't know the story of Isildur and the ring, so there's no way that he had any kind of concept of Isildur's bane, and he doesn't know about halflings which is why he is so surprised when Frodo and Bilbo walk into the council all the way at the beginning. That is why he is taken aback. That is why he is astonished because, oh, oh, okay. I've traveled for months. I've taken secret ways. I've found my, uh, my way to Rivendell. I am here now in the company of Elrond Halfalvin, greatest of the lore masters. And there are hobbits here. There are halflings here. This is weird. This is creepy. 
maybe we can forgive Boromir a little bit for feeling, <laughs> if not quite insecure, I'm not sure that he ever feels insecure per se, but he does perhaps feel as though he's on the back foot a little. He has entered a wider world, even by the standards of, you know, the son of the steward of Minas, Ti uh, of Minas Tirith. This is a different, a different ball, par uh, a different ball game entirely. Of these words we can understand little. We spoke to our father, Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor. He tells him about Imladris, he tells him about Elrond. Therefore, my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. So Faramir, previously unnamed, Faramir thinks, okay, well, I've had the prophetic dream. Now we know where it is. I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to take up this burden and do what must be done. But since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Well, Faramir, I mean, you could go looking, but you know, it's probably dangerous, right? And doubt, doubt, you know how you are with doubt. I should go. It's probably best if I go, no, I know you had the dream first, and I know you've had it way more often than I have, and it may well be that it was intended for you, but I'm going to go. Sound good? I'm going to go. Let's do that. Even though Denethor pushes back against it, long have I wandered by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many have heard, but few knew where it lay. So that is Boromir's dream. Oh, uh, Imladris, for those of you who haven't heard that term before, that is the Sindarin name of Rivendell. Rivendell is the Westron name. It is the kind of common tongue name of, of where Rivendell is. Imladris is the Sindarin name. It simply means deep valley, deep, deep uh, cloven valley, deep valley of the cleft, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Let me see. Uh, Nikki says, and Boromir ultimately becomes somewhat of a catalyst for Frodo deciding to go solo. Faramir, I'm sure, would have brought about a different result. Isn't that right, Nikki? Uh, I don't want to go too far ahead. I don't want to, like, anticipate the final beat that we get with Borom uh, Boromir because it's going to, you know, distract us from where we are. I want to pay close attention to the here and the now of Boromir. But suffice it to say, things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. That misfortune sometimes leads to fortune, Right. Okay, let's uh, let's see here. Uh, Karen says, it's part of the way JRRT measures time and the changes of civilization for us. How far legends travel, how they faded, what races are entirely unknown. I like that very much. Yes, yes. And again, you know, we were just talking about this in terms of the Nazgul. The Nazgul go forth. They've heard of Baggins. They've heard of Shire. They go forth and they have literally nothing to do but scour the world for news of the Shire and it takes them 50 years. I mean, it takes them forever to find the Shire because this is a big, empty world and people don't travel and gossip is rare. And there's just no way of, of communicating stories over any great distance unless you happen to stumble into, you know, someone who travels professionally, which is basically a wizard or a ranger or, you know, dwarves, I guess, travel back and forth a lot. But none of those people are going to be inclined to help the Nazgul. The men, the, you know, the, the men to whom the Nazgul will turn are pretty, you know, sedentary. Medieval cultures were pretty sedentary and Tolkien is clearly replicating that for his, his fictional world. Okay. It is a quarter after nine. We're, we're still good, you guys. We've still got some time. Um, mm. Nicole asks, Alistair, what force do you think is at work to give Boromir this dream, to push him towards this path, him as opposed to Faramir? Well, mm. 
what is the force that the force that gives prophetic dreams and what is the force that drives Boromir to take action rather than Faramir? I feel as though these are two different questions. Um, the force that gives prophetic dreams, we've, we've seen prophetic dreams before. We've seen kind of magical dreams. We certainly know of prophecy. The moon letters that were read the last time we were here in Rivendell certainly speak to the notion of prophecy. You know, when the thrush knocks, that is not an instructive statement. That is a prophetic statement because there's no way of knowing that that thrush would be there at the perfect time on the perfect day. You know, this, this absolutely perfect synchronized confluence of events. So we're kind of comfortable with the notion that there is prophecy. I don't know the medium by which, okay, take that step back and look at this idea of predestination and free will, okay? The idea, as I suggested earlier, that Iluvatar exists, that the God within the frame of, of Middle Earth exists outside of linear time and thus is not prey to the paradox of free will. That is to say that everyone in the world of Middle Earth has free will. They all make the decisions that they make. They all take the actions that they take. And those actions, as they are all taken simultaneously through the entire sweep of history, are ordered and orchestrated into a greater pattern. There is no paradox of free will here. It is possible for everything to be a part of God's plan and also for free will to exist. This is the resolution or one of the resolutions to this conundrum that was offered by the uh, the uh, Christian theologian and philosopher Boethius. Uh, again, I've recommended his, his uh, book, The Constellation of Philosophy, before. I can't recommend it highly enough. In fact, the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, recently did a week-by-week -week reading of The Constellation of Philosophy by Boethius. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's still pretty thick stuff. It's still pretty dense. But if you're interested in this kind of early Christian theology and and a very accessible kind of resolution of many of the problems and the questions of philosophy and theology. I can't recommend it highly enough. Go pick up a copy, do read the book first, but then go back to the beginning and listen to uh, Professor Olson's enormously learned and accessible lectures on the topic. It has been one of my favorite books for years and years, as anyone who's listened to me here on the podcast will know. I've recommended that book more than once, and reading it with Professor Olson is is really delightful. So recommended, highly recommended. Go check that out. I believe that was part of the Mythgard Academy series, so you can find that in iTunes and you can, uh, you can track that down. Um, so the resolution is there, okay? We don't have to worry about free will and we don't have to worry about prophecy. These two things, not incompatible if we remove God from the frame of linear time. And if God is omnipotent, there's no reason why he should be bound by linear time in the first place. Fine. That is like a theological construct that allows us to circumvent that. Now, assuming that that is the case, assuming that everybody has free will, but also the entirety of history is known, not in advance, but all at once, what is the vector by which prophetic dreams and visions are introduced to Middle-earth? How does this happen? Is it a direct intervention by Luvatar? Is it some kind of echo of, of the Valar or even the Meyer here in Arda itself? I don't know. I don't know is the answer to that. I don't know whether this comes from Manwe, whether this comes from Ulmo, you know, because Ulmo as the valor of the, the, the as the Valar of the ocean is oftentimes associated with dreams and with visions. I don't know if this comes from one of the Valar or if this comes from Iluvatar directly. We just don't know. We know that it does because this is pretty clearly prophetic, you guys. Seek for the sword that was broken and Imladris it dwells. There shall be councils taken stronger than Morgul spells. Check, 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 check. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. We got the whole thing. This is pretty direct 
you know, pretty, uh, pretty explicit prophecy that's happening right here. Yeah. Um, Oh, we're talking a little about the, Sind- uh, the Silmarillion here, and Trig actually has great advice. Read the appendices to Lord of the Rings. If they're boring, you're done. If, you're, if they're mostly fascinating, proceed to the Silmarillion. That is actually very good advice. Or just stick around here with Darren Beck again, where about a year and a half from now, we'll probably get started on the Silmarillion. Yeah, good, good. There are parts of the Silmarillion, too, that you can, um, that you can uh, dip into, that are a little more accessible than some of the other parts. The Aina Lindale is great. The, the Quenta is actually, you know, great. The Quenta Silmarillion is actually, um, is actually great. Uh, Turin Turin, Barbarian, and Luthien. Um, the Akalabeth, the, the story of Numenor is also very, very good. So there are a few things that you can just dip into. You don't necessarily need to read it cover to cover. That may be heretical. Okay, let's get back to it. Um, We've got to uh, we've got to keep going, you guys. We've got still so much to cover. That was Boromir's dream, and so we are moving ever onward to the sword that was broken, and of course to the ring. And here in the house of Elrond, more shall be made clear to you," said Aragorn, standing up. He cast his sword upon the table that stood before Elrond, and the blade was in two pieces. "Here is the sword that was broken," he said. "'And who are you, and what have you to do with Minas Tirith?' asked Boromir, looking in wonder at the lean face of the ranger in his weather-stained cloak. "'He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn,' said Elrond, "'and he is descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil's son of Minas Ithil. "'He is the chief of the Dúnedain in the north, and few are now left of that folk.' "'Then it belongs to you, and not to me at all!' cried Frodo in amazement, springing to his feet as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. "'It does not belong to either of us,' said Aragorn but it has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. Bring out the ring, Frodo, said Gandalf solemnly. The time has come. Hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. There was a hush, and all turned their eyes on Frodo. He was shaken by the sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. He wished that he was far away. The ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand. Behold, Isildur's bane! said Elrond. So the ring does not belong to him. Here we have the showing of the broken sword. We have Aragorn revealing himself. Elrond's putting it as plain as he possibly can. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. He is descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil, son of Minas Ithil. He is chief of the Dúnedain of the north, and few are now left of that folk. This is Aragorn's, you know, business card. This is his one-page CV right here. This is who he is. And again, note, we're getting all the names, every name. The speaking of names is certainly a gesture of respect. I mean, this is just formal language in part. But more than that, it is, it is an emphasis of stature. Here we are in mythic times. This is, this is important. So Frodo has this moment. It belongs to you, not to me at all. This is a moment of relief. I can pass it up to you. But Aragorn says, no, it does not belong to either of us. It has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. Aragorn once again, potentially at least being tempted by the ring, but stepping back. And then Gandalf says, solemnly bring out the ring. The time has come. Hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. And immediately we see Frodo under the influence of the ring. He was shaken by a sh- by excuse me. He was shaken by a sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. He wished he was far away. Why should Frodo feel these things? Why should Frodo not be 
glad to share the burden, the secret burden of the ring. This is the ring speaking. This is the ring moving through him. He was shaken by a sudden shame and fear. There is no shame and fear that Frodo should be feeling here. He felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring, a loathing of its touch. He wished he was far away. This is exactly the same influence as the ring always exerts over Frodo. The ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand. By what means does the ring gleam and flicker? Because we are, as previously stated, on the porch we are bathed in sunlight. It is now approaching lunchtime. So it's very unlikely that we're going to have, you know, torches lit or even glowing crystal, crystal elven lamps glowing here. We're bathed in the sunlight. We're doing just fine. So gleaming, okay, maybe gleaming in the sunlight. Flickering? Well, it is possible that the leafy canopy, which we might infer is over Rivendell, might be casting kind of fretted shadows down onto the porch, and that may account for the flickering. But I don't think that it does. I think there's something else happening here. I want there to be something more from the ring. The ring has never been under this much, this much scrutiny. It has been profoundly made vulnerable at this moment. Yeah. All right. Nicole is suffering after 15 hours of work and is going to head home. She's tapping out early, you guys. Nicole, have a really good evening. <laughs> yes. Sunlight off Gimli's armor, says Jonar Dor uh, Dorloman. Sorry, excuse me. Hope I pronounced that correctly. I'm almost certain that I didn't. Yes, as, as Gildart's Winter says again, the ring applying its will. Yes. And Kate says, is it the ring or is it imposter syndrome? Well, it's possible that it is, but Frodo is... I mean, mostly here among friends, right? He knows more people in the council than not. He's old friends with Gandalf. He's spent a little time with Glowen. Bilbo's here right next to him. He's familiar. He has a fondness for Aragorn, as he said before. So I'm not sure that he suddenly just has a, a you know, this, this, um, this, sense of sense of his own self-consciousness you know that he is he is suddenly vulnerable in this moment i i think it is absolutely because we've seen this before i'm confident that this is the influence of the ring um let me see jeff asks is this frodo's pov hence frodo's perception when he holds up the ring um yes i would say so absolutely um we move into frodo's pov there was a hush and i'll turn their eyes on frodo that's kind of cluing us that the narrative itself is is turning its attention to frodo he was shaken by a sudden shame and fear and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring a loathing of its touch he wished he was far away this is frodo's internal monologue that is happening here you know we're, we're getting a pretty close account of frodo's emotional state right now so yes we're dead definitely back uh we're definitely back in um in Frodo's pov here the ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand yeah you're right absolutely jeff your implication there is absolutely absolutely viable that this may be flickering in Frodo's pov good good okay let me see i'm now looking toward it is now almost 9:30 here in oklahoma city so now i'm looking toward the possibility of a convenient stopping point yeah we're going to be lucky if we get halfway through this you guys uh so we have the sword that was broken and we get uh we get a certain conflict here between boromir and aragorn there's uh you know measuring contest happening here it's probably fair to say little you know southern kingdom northern kingdom rivalry you know yeah we're standing guard yeah but we're taking care of the wild what's up and then Bilbo intrudes. Frodo felt Bilbo stir impatiently at his side. Evidently he was annoyed on his friend's behalf. Standing suddenly up, he burst out, 
All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Not very good, perhaps, but to the point. And if you need more beside the word of El- if you need more beyond the word of Elrond, if that was worth a journey of a hundred and ten days to hear, you'd best listen to it. He sat down with a snort. I made that up myself, he whispered to Frodo for the Dunedan a long time ago when he first told me about himself. I almost wish that my adventures were not over, and I could go with him when his day comes. So, a little minor reveal here that the poem quoted by Gandalf in the letter that he left for Frodo back at the Prancing Pony was in fact a Bilbo original. It was another poem written by Bilbo, which may not come as a surprise, but it does indicate that Bilbo has absolute faith in Aragorn. He believes this prophecy. It is entirely possible that this is not prophetic writing on the part of Bilbo himself, but rather this is a part of the prophecy of the return of the king. We know that there are versions of that prophecy out there. So Bilbo is making reference to it. And now looking back at this poem with all that we know, it makes so much more sense. All that is, glo- all that is gold does not glitter. Value is not about appearance. It is about substance, as opposed, of course, with, uh, with uh, you know, <laughs> more contemporary understandings of value. Yeah, Galadrabecki notes Bilbo snorts. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. He has little time for Boromir. All that is gold does not glitter. It's not about superficiality. It's about substance. Not all those who wander are lost. The Dunedain, the rangers, they're not lost. They just walk. They travel. They wander. But it's not about not knowing where they belong. It's about knowing absolutely where they belong. The old that is strong does not wither. Well, I think Bilbo's kind of in conflict with the professor here because it does, ultimately, it does. In this particular instance, it hasn't, but it does. The men of Gondor are just as Numenorean as the men of Arnor. Let's remember that for a start, you know. Their bloodlines aren't different. The men of Arnor being fewer in number, their bloodline is a little more pure, perhaps. They carry more of that Numenorean blood, more of that golden age within them, but still... They're pretty Numenorean down south too. The old that is strong does not weather. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. That adversity, that difficulty. And we're going to get this account from, uh, from Aragorn. I have wandered everywhere. I have done things that you couldn't believe in the defense of this land. Don't, don't you dare with your Minas Morgul, Minas, <laughs> Minas Tirith thing. Um, Oh, uh, Jonar here in the YouTube chat is saying, all that is gold does not glitter seems to be in our known sayings. Does this come from somewhere else? No, this comes from Tolkien. This was completely original. Uh, not all not all those who wander are lost. This poem has given us two uh, common phrases in, in English, two common idiomatic phrases in English now. Um, but we, you know, would contrast that with, with earlier versions of, of that idea. Um, yeah, Jackie says, I love the idea of the friendship that developed over the years. Yes, good, good. Um, yeah, Bilbo's a big fan of Aragorn, she knows. She, he certainly is, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Trig says, the live chat is for me about a minute ahead of the video, which can get confusing when chat reacts to things I haven't heard yet. That is surprising because it's usually the other way around. Uh, if you just do a Control-R or an, an F5 to refresh, that might work. 
that might work. Uh, yes, Skeep is calling out the uh, calling out the uh, Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice. All that glitters is not gold. You'll see the opposition there, right? All that glitters is not gold is the kind of cynical Shakespearean perspective on it. Oh, oh, okay. So it's shiny, but it might not actually be worth anything. Whereas Bilbo presents the opposing view. Well, lots of things that aren't lots of things that aren't shiny are worth things. Or to put that, I guess, more correctly, lots of things of enormous value are not shiny. Sometimes they show up to a council in Rivendell wearing travel-stained, you know, cloaks. Sometimes that happens with broken swords. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, yeah. From the ashes of fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. And look at what Bilbo says. I made that up myself, he whispered to Frodo for the Dunedain a long time ago when he first told me about himself. I almost wish that my adventures were not over and that I could go with him when his day comes. Not only does this speak to a profound kind of friendship, a love between Bilbo and Aragorn, which I completely adore, but also it's enough that Bilbo would want to leave Rivendell. It's, it's almost enough to drive him forward into adventure. Yeah, good. Um... Okay, so that's Bilbo's verse. Uh, let's move on then. Yeah, let's take a look, in fact, at the role of the Dunedain. If Gondor, Boromir, has been a stalwart tower, we have played another part. Many evil things there, many evil things there are that your strong walls and bright swords do not stay. You know little of the lands beyond your bounds. Peace and freedom, do you say? The North would have known them little but for us. Fear would have destroyed them. But when dark things came from the houseless hills or creep from sunless woods, they fly from us. What roads would any dare to dread? When safety, what safety would there be in quiet lands or in the homes of simple men at night if the Dunedain were asleep or if they were all gone into the grave? And yet less thanks have we than you. Travelers scowl at us and countrymen give us scornful names. Strider I am to one fat man who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart or lay his little town in ruin if he were not guarded ceaselessly. Yet we would not have it otherwise. If simple folk are free from care and fear, simple they will be, and we must be secret to keep them so. That has been the task of my kindred while the years have lengthened and the grass has grown. But now the world is changing once again. A new hour comes. Isildur's bane is found. Battle is at hand. The sword shall be reforged. I will come to Minas Tirith. Aragorn here making a great argument for the rangers and for why they are so important. Yeah, it is heroic. It is glorious to stand at the bulwark of the West, to stand in the defense of all civilized lands against the shadow itself. It is heroic. But the problem with heroism is that it also requires villainy. The problem with lights that bright is that they inevitably cast shadows. You cannot live with the glory of Gondor, with the glory of Minas Tirith, without living with the fear of Moria. Uh, of Moria. <laughs> Excuse me, of Mordor. We'll deal with the fear of Moria in a couple of weeks' time, you guys. You can't have the light without the dark. So here in the north, we cast no light. We take care of things quietly. We take care of things in secret because that is the only way of preserving peace. It is... A fragile peace. It is perhaps an untrue peace. It is perhaps an ignorant peace, but it is a peace nonetheless. He's not here for the glory. He's not here for the heroism. He's doing this for the virtue of the thing. 
because people are staying simple. What roads would any dare to tread? What safety would there be in quiet lands or in the homes of simple men at night if the Dunedain were asleep or we were all gone into the grave? If simple folk are free from care and fear, simple they will be, and we must be secret to keep them so. That has been the task of my kindred while the years have lengthened and the grass has grown. Simplicity here is an important virtue, and now we understand a little better why it is that the, that the Dunedain do what they do, why it is that the rangers that Aragorn included protect the Shire specifically of all places, because that is perhaps the most simple place. Even in Bree, we've heard stories from further afield. Bree is more corrupted by the influence of the shadow, by news of the shadow. Bill Fernie, you know, has been corrupted by the shadow in Bree, corrupted by greed and by avarice and by cynicism, but not so in the Shire. The worst things that happen in the Shire are the stealing of some silver spoons, some party guests sneak out of the back gate and come back in the front door so that Bilbo gives them a second present. It's not that bad in the Shire, you guys. It's pretty simple. And that has a value itself. Heroes and Bards says in the YouTube chat, We sleep soundly in our beds because rough men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would do us harm. Yes. Yes. Effectively, yes. To, to battle the darkness of the world by stepping into the darkness with it, Right? That's not what happens in Gondor. Gondor is the light against the dark, but the Dunedain are, I suppose, also just warriors of the dark. They also live in shadow while the grass grows. Yeah. All right. Let me see here. Um, okay. I think what we're going to do is do one more slide here tonight because then Gandalf starts. <laughs> and that would actually be a really great place to break for next week. So rather than do a longer session this week and a, uh, we're already slightly long, I suppose slightly over time, rather than do a very long session this week and then a shorter session next week, we're at a pretty good place to split this in half. So we'll do Bilbo's story here and then we'll uh, pick up with Gandalf next week. I think that's probably the best plan. Anyone who had, uh, let me see, what is this? Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay, so that's not bad. That means I'm going to have done uh, 14 slides out of the uh, 14 slides, 14 down, 13 to go. Good. I covered more than half. I'm feeling pretty good about that. All right. Very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid. Oh, to give this a little frame here, this is after Bilbo has volunteered to carry the ring and Elrond is amused. There's great affection there for, for Bilbo at this point. Very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid, but I will now tell the true story of some here have heard me tell... Oh, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is not that point. This is just when Bilbo's telling the story. I'm skipping ahead in my notes to the end of the session. You guys, we're not going to get there until next week. So this is Bilbo telling the story, and we're going to frame this with our memories of The Hobbit. We're going to frame this with our memories of the first edition of The Hobbit, in which, if you'll remember, the account of the Riddles in the Dark chapter is within the fictional frame of the second edition of The Hobbit, and ultimately The Lord of the Rings 2, a concoction, a fabrication of Bilbo's. He lies to the dwarves about the circumstances under which he gets the ring from Gollum. And then, only much, much later tells the truth. That true version is the second edition of The Hobbit. That's after Tolkien went back to revise it to make it more compatible with what he wanted to do with the ring and with Gollum and with Bilbo for The Lord of the Rings. The first version is the lie that he told to the dwarves. So, very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid, but I will now tell the true story, and if some here have heard me tell it otherwise, he looked sidelong at Glowen. 
I ask them to forget it and forgive me. I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days and to be rid of the name of thief that was put on me. But perhaps I understand things a little better now. Anyway, this is what happened. To some there, Bilbo's tale was wholly new, and they listened with amazement while the old hobbit, actually not at all displeased, recounted his adventure with Gollum at full length. He did not omit a single riddle. He would have given also an account of his party and disappearance from the Shire if he had been allowed, but Elrond raised his hand. "'Well told, my friend,' he said. "'But that is enough at this time. For the moment it suffices to know that the ring passed to Frodo, your heir. Let him now speak.' Then, less willingly than Bilbo, Frodo told of all his dealings with the ring from the day that it passed into his keeping. Every step of his journey from Hobbiton to the Ford of Brunan was questioned and considered, and everything that he could recall concerning the Black Riders was examined. At last, he sat down again. We see here that as many similarities as there are between Frodo and Bilbo, there are still a couple of differences. Frodo will never be the performer that Bilbo is. Bilbo is thrilled to have a captive audience as he tells his story, even if that means telling the true version of events to Glowin for what is probably the very first time, but he's thrilled to tell the story. Frodo, much less so. Yeah. Um, and to Elrond, of course, halting things before Bilbo can just basically begin the Lord of the Rings is, is what would happen here. And then he'd get to, you know, the first, uh, the second chapter of book two of his story and he'd start telling about the Council of Elrond and the whole thing would become cyclical because in Bilbo's version of this story, the fictional Bilbo would then start telling his version of events and we'd just never be able to move on past the Council of Elrond. So it's a good thing that Elrond stopped him. And we can, uh, we can go on as Jackie says, ha Bilbo loves this. And Heroes and Bard says, I feel like Bilbo could go on for weeks if people would let him. Yes. And Jeff says, interesting that Bilbo uses the word thief here. Was he ever called thief in The Hobbit? I remember burglar, or did Thorin call him a thief? Albeit that was about the Arkenstone, not the ring. No, that is about the Arkenstone later in the story. But Gollum calls him thief, at least in the later version of the story. Thief, Baggins, Baggins, we hates it forever. That's, Yeah. That's part of it. That's the, the, the name that he's trying to, trying to uh, shake there. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, Galadriel Becky says, can we have an extra podcast this week? You guys, I'm already doing an extra podcast this week. Um, well, okay, look. The YouTube version will be available after the fact, and the podcast version will be available after the fact, too. Um, 14. Yeah, Jeff, you win, you win the, the, the pool here. You did, you did great. Uh, you know, I would do an extra session tomorrow, but I'm already doing the last session of uh, Storms on the Way tomorrow night. So I've already pledged to one extra session this week. So I'm really sorry, you guys. This is just how the schedule works out. Um, I will take a look at the schedule. And if it is more convenient for more of you, I will look into moving it to the evening next Thursday night. I'll see if that can be done. If it can, then I will. If it can't, then I won't. It may have to be later. It may have to be 10 p.m. Eastern versus 9 p.m. Eastern, So, which I know is going to be super difficult for Skipa because I think that's 3 a.m. in Scotland, which is even more unbearable and unreasonable than 2 a.m. in Scotland, Skipa. As ever, we applaud and admire your, uh, your devotion here. Um, yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's... Um, Let's wrap up there, I think. Um, does the ring... This is interesting. Jonar asks, does the ring make Bilbo more Tookish or more Baggins? Um, hmm. Hmm. Well, if the ring has 
the same kind of uh, regressive, cautious effect on Bilbo as it has on Frodo, then it would make him more bangins. It would make him less inclined to adventure. But I'm not sure that that's a real dichotomy that we can analyze. We don't ever really get the influence of the ring over Bilbo the same way that we get it over Frodo. That is to say, we get the effect, remember, right back at the beginning when he's supposed to put the ring in the envelope on the mantle. And why, no, here it is in my pocket. What a queer thing. Well, maybe I should just keep it after all, huh? Maybe that's the thing that should happen. That's clearly the influence of the ring. By context, that is clearly the influence of the ring. But what we don't get is the internal justification. We only get that from Frodo. So I'm not entirely sure quite how the ring speaks to Bilbo, but it's clearly a similar kind of effect. And certainly as we move further forward into the story, we're going to see other people fall under the sway of the ring. We're going to see other people influenced by that kind of rationalization, and we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Um, Good. Um, Let me see. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That, I think, is going to do it. Here's what I'll do. Um, yeah, please, please move it, says Tolkien Lover. I'll be at camp for the daytime ones. Since it is the back half of the Council of Elrond, I think we'll try and move it into the evening. Stay tuned, though, okay? I need you guys to head on over to twitter.com slash pointearthmedia. Go follow me over there. Better yet, head on over to the website, to pointearthmedia.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Every Monday, I send out a newsletter with the schedule for that week. And you can also head on over to pointearthmedia.com. Click the podcast button. Scroll down to the bottom of the page. You will find there the calendar for the, the live broadcast broadcast calendar that has everything, I think, through to the end of um, August on it already. Things including more there and back again, of course. As I said, Storms on the Way finishes tomorrow night. That is going to be the last session of Storms on the Way, at least until the show comes back for its second season next year, possibly early the year after. Stars isn't interested. And when you want to watch television, they'll release television when they are good and ready. And that's maybe the way that it should be, all things considered. So uh, that's going to be the last uh, the last session of Storms on the Way, looking at Monarch of the, Gan- uh, Monarch of the Glen excuse me, and Black Dog. Those are the, the two short stories written in the American Gods universe. And then next week, a couple of new things. Firstly, Monday and Friday from Point North Media, The Narrative Beat. This is going to be a 15-minute writing podcast dedicated to the craft, the art, and the business of writing. If you remember my old podcast, The Journeyman Writer, of which I produced something like 250 episodes last year, then it's going to be something similar to that, a little more long form and twice a week instead of three times a week. So every Monday and Friday from Point North Media, The Narrative Beat. Stay tuned for subscription links and all of that. And then next Tuesday... In the Storms on the Way slot, uh, this is going to be 3 p.m. Eastern next week. We're going to have the first session of Dear Mr. Potter. We're going to take a look at Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We're looking at the first two chapters next week. It is going to be a ton of fun. So I absolutely urge you all, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com. If you do nothing else tonight, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. The newsletter link is right there on the first on the front page. Type in your email, type in your name, do your thing. I don't spam that. I don't, uh, you know, sell that to anyone or send you advertising or anything like that. It is just for the weekly, uh, the weekly update emails to let you know what is happening. So, uh, Go sign up for that. I will do my level best with the uh, There and Back Again broadcast next week. We'll see how that all works out. But we are going to, uh, is the narrative beat free, says Nikki? Yes, yes, like all the podcasts over at pointnorthmedia.com. It is freely available. So you will get that every Monday and every Friday. I don't have uh, subscription links yet, but I'm hoping to have them tomorrow. So as I say, stay tuned for that. Yes, Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite. Harry Potter says Heroes and Bards. That's because you're a right-thinking person. Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite, too, is what I mean. Other opinions are available. They're all perfectly valid, I'm sure. (laughs) All right. 
let's wrap up there. Yes, there is some real tension between uh, between Frodo's desire to uh, give up the ring to Aragorn and then loath to reveal it, and then, of course, willing to undertake the quest. We'll get to all of that. But first of all, we're going to deal with Gandalf, and we're going to deal with Saruman, and we're going to deal with all the things that are going on down in that part of the world. Okay. Let's call it quits there, guys. Thank you all so, so much for your time. And if you like what I do here, if you want to make it easier to schedule these evening sessions, if you want to help improve the video and audio quality, though I'm glad to say that everything seems to be pretty good tonight, then head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash pointnorthmedia. All one word, all lowercase. There you can pledge your support. A dollar a month or whatever you can afford. And believe me when I tell you, every single dollar helps and every single dollar goes into the production of more podcasts. If you would like longer sessions, if you would like me to be a little more flexible in my schedule, to do more evening sessions, to make things a little easier for your particular time zone, if you would like me to talk about a text of your choice, you can head on over there and pledge your support and I will talk about anything that you want me to talk about. That's the promise. That's how it works. Patreon.com slash PointNorthMedia. That will do it for this week. I appreciate all your support. Thanks so much for joining us. Tolkien lover, nice to have you here with us. I hope you had a good time. I will see you all tomorrow for Storms on the Way. I will see you all next Thursday for uh, There and Back Again. I'll talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Mm